Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Learn how the city of Hamilton is preparing to welcome as many as 2,000 Ukrainian refugees. Day one in our Future of Work series examines how the pandemic has changed the workplace. It's over and out for the Rolling Thunder Ottawa protest. Does anyone think the Leafs can take out the two-time defending champs? And which hockey fans love to pound back the brewskis? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I can reassure Canadians that we are directly responding to uh, the top requests that the Ukrainians have given for assistance uh, in uh, this current phase of the war, which is uh, a, a redoubled efforts by uh, Russia uh, to take uh, take Donbass. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That's the voice of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reflecting on what is happening in Ukraine. And we know that as many as 2,000 Ukrainian refugees are expected to arrive in Hamilton. And a Ukrainian Welcome and Information Center has now been created in the city to bring those people in. Elena Lazar is the president of the Ukrainian Canada Congress and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Elena, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine, thank you. How is uh, the Congress and the city of Hamilton partnering together to make this happen? Well, we have been uh, uh, meeting for the past uh, several months together to look at uh, the different services that could be required for the incoming immigrants and how we could all work together as partners to assist them in that regard. So one of the committees um, that we sit with various uh, agencies, uh, we've decided to open uh, a one-stop shop uh, at one of our local halls uh, to provide all those services for them uh, all in one place. So what will uh, refugees see when they visit this center? Well, when they come in, they will see our various partners. Uh, they will all have a table. Uh, YMCA is the lead agency for uh, settlement. Uh, there will be Wesley Services. Uh, both school boards will have a table. Uh, Service Ontario will also have a table. So they'll get assistance signing out for uh, perhaps an OHIP card, a social insurance card, getting information how to register children at school, um, how to apply for jobs, um, you know, all those services that they will need. And this is being held at the Ukrainian Catholic Church of Resurrection on Upper Wentworth Street, right? Uh, well, at the church hall, yes. Okay. Um, we plan to have other sessions. At this point, we're not quite sure how many people are actually in Hamilton. Um, roughly by judging the number of people that were at all our local churches, we estimate at least 200 people are in Hamilton already. And of course, more are coming each and every day. Is that 2000 figure uh, a top out? Is that a max? Can we expect maybe a little bit more than that? Uh, we could expect more, or we could expect slightly less. The uh, the issue, I think, for everybody is um, they are getting their visas um, overseas, and uh, then they're buying their plane tickets, and until they arrive at the Toronto airport, um, and they tell us, and they decide to come, you know, at that point, they decide where they're going to go, which city they're going to go. So that's just an estimate. It could be more. It could be less. We don't know until it happens. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Elena Lazar, president of the Ukrainian Canada Congress. The Congress and the City of Hamilton and a number of uh, community partners have launched the Ukrainian Welcome and Information Center as they begin to accept some Ukrainian refugees. What, what's some of the big challenges that these refugees face when they come here? Well, one of the biggest challenges is, of course, housing. Um, there is a shortage of uh, apartments and housing, and of course, the cost is really high. Um, for example, some of the refugees are going out west where they can rent an apartment for a thousand or twelve hundred dollars. The going rate for Hamilton is eighteen hundred dollars and more. So that's the biggest barrier and the lack of uh, affordable housing. Um, there are jobs, there are lots of jobs, employers are coming to us, offering positions, but of course you can't take a job unless you have someplace to hang your head. Are any of these refugees going to be placed in hotels while they are looking for homes? Uh, well, the government did announce that they would be providing two-week hotel stay. Uh, but the details of that has not been shared, and so at this point, they're not. I think the city of Hamilton is, and the settlement agencies are working with different partners to find temporary places, uh, perhaps at uh, universities. You know, the students are done their school year, perhaps um, at colleges, but at this point, um, we don't have that information as of yet. Hopefully, we'll find out today. We have about a minute. Uh, there's a, a pretty large local Ukrainian community here in Hamilton. How are they helping out? Well, uh, we've been um, sending planes of medical supplies. We've sent four planes out of Hamilton Airport. We've done rallies. We've done various fundraising events. There's a, a movie being showed at Westdale. There's a concert at the Zotetic. Uh, we're also planning a peace rally with the um, Jewish Federal Congress and the Polish uh, Congress. We're doing that together, uh, praying for peace. And, um, and we continue to gather supplies and um, contribute to the funds that are providing humanitarian relief in Europe where they need it, and sending medical supplies. That's what they're really looking for. Elena, thanks for your time today and uh, shining a spotlight on this Ukrainian Welcome and Information Center. It's going to do a lot of good in this community. Great. Thank you so much for calling. Elena Lazar is the president of the Ukrainian Canada Congress. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is the first of five consecutive days this week in which we will focus on the future of work. There are many question marks that people have, many things that employers and employees want to do. There are some roadblocks and challenges ahead, and this week we will examine all of those factors. We kick off our series examining how the pandemic has changed work. Today we discuss the rules and regulations that people who are going back to the physical workspace have to learn. Dean Jessavant is a vice president at Hayes Specialist Recruitment and will be joining us to talk about this. Uh, do we have Dean? Good morning, Rick. Good, yes, I'm here. Good morning, Dean. How are you? Very well, thanks. Today, how are you? I'm fantastic. What are some of the new realities that people who are returning to the workplace have to deal with? Um, well, I, I mean, I think the, the, the reality is that um, uh, I think the employees are facing is that we are very much in what we would call a hybrid 
work environment at the moment whereby most employees are splitting their time between an office um, and, a, and, a, and a physical workspace. Um, and I think that the reality they're facing um, is that a lot of people just don't want to go back to, 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 to an office space and, and have been very productive working from home. So, so they're asking many questions to employers in that regard. One of the big questions is, can my employer force me to go back into the physical workspace? What's the answer? Well, the answer is um, the answer is they they could, um, but would be advised not not to do so. Um, as I say, most most employers in industries that um, uh, allow it to do so are adopting a hybrid workspace, whereby they will do some sometime uh, within an office and sometime at home. So, um, yeah, I think employers that are, um, if you like, um, as you mentioned, Rick, forcing um, employees to go back to the office, I think are going to find it extremely difficult to attract um, candidate um, and retain their current employees as well. To that end, uh, I think businesses that offer a more flexible work week or work schedule are just going to be more successful than those who don't. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of um, stats and facts around around um, productivity. So, so, and there's a big debate on it actually. But um, uh, most businesses in Canada, and, and obviously the economy is performing exceptionally well at the moment. Most businesses have been more productive adopting this this hybrid um, workspace. Um, some employees are more productive at home. Um, some employees are more productive in the office. I think the one thing to 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 note though as well is that. Um, you know, that there are factors such as um, culture, collaboration, 62% of Canadian employees across the board are maintaining that morale and company culture is a huge challenge in a remote environment. Another big challenge is uh, our mental health. We have to be more mindful than ever, I think, about our mental health. Is this the number one concern among both employees and employers? It's, it's the number one concern. Employee mental health has been a really big one for employers to navigate around, particularly in recent years. To give you an example, 30% of disability claims in Canada are related to mental health problems and mental illness. So employers ensuring their practices around that is important. The other one on the back of that is employee well-being. Um, top a priority for most employees and candidates looking for employment. So I think companies ensuring their benefits around well-being, for example, managing the balance between driving productivity and employee well-being is very important. So that work-life balance is going to be more important than ever before as well? Work-life balance, yeah, absolutely. And I'd say more specifically, um, organizations trying to provide flexible solutions for uh, employees around policies. So we talked about earlier, a lot of companies are writing their return to work policies um, as we speak. And I think they're collating a lot of research you know one really good example is um you know giving exemptions around policies so uh, example being um parents who might have to drop um, children off at school um, might need exemptions around days um, that they might need to go into the office or even hours that they may need to work dean appreciate the time today thanks for kicking off our future of work series in style thank you thanks so much rick you're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. From the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, an endless number of people around the world have been forced to work from home. Many others lost their jobs, as we know, and some are having to retrain or even go back to school to launch a career in a different line of work. We're going to talk about some of these topics with our next guest in our week-long Future of Work series on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Joining us now is Jim Stanford. He's an economist and author and director of the Center for Future Work. Jim, good morning. How are you? 
I'm well, Rick. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's start with the millions, really probably billions of people who've been working from home over the last 24-plus uh, months. Uh, they were forced to quickly adapt to a new reality the pandemic brought. Many did so effectively. Others struggled. What are some of the things that come to mind when you think about the hurdles that these people have had to endure? Well, in Canada, uh, Rick, it's maybe about a third of the workforce who had the potential to shift their jobs to home when the pandemic hit. And this was a great thing. I mean, it was great for them. They could keep their jobs. They could keep their incomes. They didn't have to you know, go out and brave getting COVID uh, at work or on the bus to work or, or whatever. Um, and it was good for the economy. It allowed a, a certain portion of the work to carry on in the economy, even through the worst of the, of the lockdowns. I think it is important to remember that that is still a minority of people, and it's a relatively lucky minority. Uh, by and large, it's office workers, professionals, managers, uh, people who had pretty good jobs to start with. They're the ones who were able to keep their work by moving at home during the pandemic. Uh, other people who do frontline work, whether that's in, say, healthcare and education and other public services, but also uh, think about restaurants, hospitality, retail, transportation, logistics, those people had to be at their jobs. And so they were both more likely to lose work during the pandemic, but also um, be exposed to COVID when they did go to their jobs. So I think it's important to remember the work from home thing was not universal. And the people who were able to do it were generally a bit luckier. On the other hand, there were some significant challenges associated with working from home. Uh, one of them, of course, uh, anyone who's got kids knows uh, trying to juggle kids with one hand and your laptop with the other <laughs> Uh, is a pretty stressful situation, not prone to the best productivity. Uh, other issues, where where do you put your home office? I mean, honestly, think of the house, housing prices in Ontario. Not many of us have got just a spare room sitting there that we can set up as an office, so we're kind of crowding our living uh, circumstances, uh, setting up on the kitchen counter, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, another issue, I think, is the time, time and hours of work. Uh, in many cases, uh, if you were working from home and the laptop was there, your employer probably thought, ah, oh, you know what, they're just at home anyway, I'll call them or email them at eight o'clock at night. Uh, so the whole issue of where does your work stop and your life begins got a bit more complicated. So those are some of the challenges. On the whole, most people seemed to like working from home and most people doing it would like to keep doing it at least some of the time. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Jim Stanford, economist, author, and director of the Center for Future Work. You can find out more online at centerforfuturework.ca. Now, for employees who've been working from home who are now starting to return to work full-time or, or maybe even using a, a hybrid approach, what challenges do they face? Yeah, it's going to be a bit of a, a culture shock, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we kind of got used to... Uh being in our little bubbles, uh, both for obviously health reasons, you know, it was uh, concerning to go out into into the world when you knew you could get sick there, uh, but also social factors. You know, I think a lot of people in a way kind of lost some of the social skills about interacting with people and working in groups uh, and so on. So I think uh, we are gonna have to recognize there's gonna be a transition. Uh, I think there is a, a big issue, Rick, uh, about how that return to work occurs. Um, you know, I think legally, employers certainly have the right to tell their workers uh, it's time to come back to the office. Uh, um, you know, there may be cases where if you had a collective agreement that, that they might require some consultation or negotiation around that. But in most cases, I, I think the employer has the, the legal right to just do it. 
On the other hand, I think they've got to tread carefully because if people feel resentful or uh, scared about returning to work, now that's going to affect uh, morale and teamwork and productivity. Uh, so I think we've got to do this carefully and gradually. Um, I think a lot of workplaces are going to a kind of hybrid approach where you come in for a couple of days uh, a week and then you're still allowed to work at home some of the other days. That that may prove to be a, a long lasting thing. Uh, ultimately, I do think uh, employers are going to want people back in the workplace. Uh, I think for most employers, not all, most employers think that's where they'll get the most um, uh, communication and cooperation within their office teams and also have a, a better chance to keep an eye on people and, and what they're doing. They're, they're working, not, you know, watching Netflix or having a good <laughs> afternoon nap. Yeah, that we don't want to have uh, any of that. Uh, also, now is probably a good time to have a conversation with your employer if you are, you know, hoping to stay at home at least for a couple or three days a week. Uh, Jim, we're plumb out of time. I really appreciate your time and your insight into this topic. Thank you very much, Rick. Jim Stanford, economist, author, and executive director of Center for Future Work. Tomorrow in our Future of Work series here on Good Morning Hamilton, we'll look at how the pandemic has created a labor shortage. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I find that these people don't have a, a message they can tell people, so they yell freedom, but the things they actually want, they seem to keep to themselves. And I think that's because most Canadians would find them absolutely abhorrent if they heard what they actually thought. So I, I think their days are numbered. And I, I'm hoping we can have a quiet summer and these weirdos just go home. That was Canadian Armed Forces veteran Chris Anderson of Ottawa, who attended a counter-protest yesterday in the nation's capital as the Rolling Thunder Ottawa protest made its way in and then out of Ottawa. Ten people arrested, hundreds of parking tickets were dished out, dozens of vehicles towed away. A lot of noise was made. Was the message sent? Um, who knows? It depends on who was there and who was listening. Kareem Saad is a lawyer who was in Ottawa over the weekend and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Karima, good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning. What uh, brought you to Ottawa over the weekend? Well, I have been covering um, this movement, sort of broadly speaking, um, for, for quite some time. And I was here throughout the convoy in January and February. Uh, so I, I wanted to come back to see if, uh, you know, how things might be different, what the police response might be, what the citizen response might be. Um, so really, it was it was curiosity that brought me out. Well, bring us some of the sights and sounds that you saw over the weekend. What caught your attention? Well, the first thing I noticed is that um, police had blocked off streets in advance, um, which is something that we didn't see last time around. Uh, and, and so to the extent that there were vehicles looking to participate uh, in this demonstration, they were not able to get in front of parliament. Um, there was sort of a, 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 an exclusion zone um, of sorts. Um, that said, Friday night, things did get uh, a little bit hairy. Um, some, some vehicles did make it in where they weren't supposed to be. Um, and there were some clashes between police and protesters. Uh, and the Saturday event, you know, there was a, a bit of a, a motorcycle parade of sorts. Um, there was speeches at the War Memorial, speeches on Parliament Hill. Um, but really, it, it looked like 
one of the ordinary kind of freedom rallies, so-called freedom rallies. We did see some violence in the uh, February uh, Ottawa occupation. Uh, Did you ever feel unsafe or worried this past weekend? And were there any skirmishes about? There were a few skirmishes um, and I caught some of that on video. Um, Although questions about sort of the extent to which um, protesters may have been looking to create some kind of a, a scene um, and and sort of instigate. Um, so, you know, that, that uh, as far as safety, um, you know, I, I always do my best to just sort of stay as far back as I can. Um, it was smaller crowds than we saw last time uh, and a much heavier police presence right from the outset. Um, so I, that, you know, that was in, in mind um, as far as safety concerns. Yeah, there's also no hot tubs this time around either. <laughs> no hot tubs, no <laughs> bouncy castles. You know, what a disappointment uh, on that front. <laughs> I'd imagine so. Karima Saad is a lawyer who was in Ottawa this weekend, has been following these uh, so-called freedom protests, obviously the big one in uh, February, and another one over the weekend is Rolling Thunder Ottawa, rolled in and then rolled out. Uh, you mentioned police were ultra-prepared this weekend, way more so than uh, what they were in February. What were the people of Ottawa um, saying in that regard? Well, I think, um, you know, there was a bit of face saving that needed to happen on the part of police. And I think more or less citizens were, you know, or residents were were happy to have it nipped in the bud um, rather than sort of a situation where people entrench themselves and overstay. Um, And and for their part, um, residents organized uh, at least a couple of counter protests. In fact, I think um, the only actual permit that was issued for protesting was to a counter protester um, who had their own megaphone and their own message to spread on Parliament Hill. Uh, Rolling Thunder organizers say the rally was set up to oppose COVID vaccine mandates, but we did see many of the same uh, anti-government signs, slogans and flags that Ron displayed during the occupation back in February. The messaging has really been convoluted, hasn't it? There's a total lack of cohesion. um, And and I think with respect to Rolling Thunder in particular, my impression is that it was announced in sort of an offhanded way on a TikTok video that went viral. And the idea and the date came before any sort of planning. And so as a result, we saw the organizer kind of backtrack on the messaging. This is actually about veterans. It's not a protest. But yes, it is a protest. And and so even on that base level, um, you know, there was a lack of clarity as to what was going on. Uh, And and you're right that it is a lot of the same faces that we saw in February, um, the same faces I see in Niagara Falls, in Toronto, in Peterborough. Um, So, you know, it's a group that really they're, they're tenacious about showing up. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Karim Asad, a lawyer who was in Ottawa this weekend, has been following these uh, protests uh, all the way back into uh, into February. Um, do you think these type of protests will continue throughout the spring and summer? Every so often we're going to get another, I don't know, rolling thunder or, or, or truckers protest or whatever the case is? Well, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, the goalposts shift so easily that even if, the the group accomplishes 
um, what it is they, they say they're looking to do. I don't know that that will resolve the underlying discontent and sense of, of civil unrest, really. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it will depend, obviously, on a lot of factors, um, but it's maybe overly optimistic to imagine that this will simply evaporate. I think that that energy um, is going to need a focal point going forward, and, and it, we'll, we'll see how that manifests. Absolutely. I'm sure there's a big sigh of relief in the Capitol this morning, that's for sure. Karima, thanks for the time today. Thank you so much for having me. And as Karima said, a lawyer who was in Ottawa this weekend has been following the so-called freedom protests for the last few months. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's a massive challenge, of course. It goes without saying. You know, uh, back-to-back champs, <clears throat> you know, the uh, have elite players at all positions, great depth. Great experience, obviously. Maple Leafs head coach Sheldon Keefe summarizing the two-time defending champion Tampa Bay Lightning, which they will take on in round one starting tonight as the puck drops on the Stanley Cup playoffs this evening. Which of the 16 remaining teams is going to be the last one standing hoisting hockey's holy grail? And will the Maple Leafs finally advance past the first round? Also, is Tampa Bay headed for a three-peat, which we haven't seen in a long, long time? Well, let's ask some of those questions with our next guest. Brian Murphy is an NHL content producer with the Sporting News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Well, let, let's start with a series that I think most hockey fans in this part of the country are focused on, and that is Leafs Lightning. Uh, Tampa Bay, two-time defending Stanley Cup champs. The Maple Leafs uh, haven't advanced past the first round since God was a boy. Toronto may be the betting favorites, but can they take out Tampa Bay? Yeah, certainly it is the, the big talking point going into the NHL postseason, and one that a lot of people are interested in. And the field is Maple Leafs team certainly feels different. I mean, we had the success last year, but then they had the, such high expectations going into the playoffs. They were supposed to walk through their division. All of a sudden, suddenly they're upset. I don't think there's obviously a lot of pressure still given their history, but I don't think there's as much pressure for them going into the playoffs. Obviously, they already know that they're going to have a tough matchup against the Lightning. Sheldon Keefe said it best yesterday. It's going to be a bloodbath of a series, one that I'm looking forward to. I honestly wouldn't be surprised to see either team come out on top, but as we know in the past with the Maple Leafs, you got to play the games and we got to see what happens. But very looking excited to see that uh, series starting off in the first round. There's so much top level talent in this series from Matthews and Marner to Kucherov and Stamkos. Um, I think it's going to come down to the goaltending and, and it usually does. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for as for as good of a goaltender he's been in the past, Andre Vatskaleski hasn't had as good of a season as he had in the past years. So I don't think he's regarded, you know, but it, when it comes to the playoffs, his resume speaks for itself. The Smythe winner last year, sub 2-0 uh, goals against average the last two seasons. You know that he's going to bring it in the postseason. And on the Maple Leafs side, it really is a question mark. It was a huge talking point during the deadline. Are they going to go out and get a goaltender? Ultimately ended up staying faith with the two. Uh, on the roster with Jack Campbell and then eventually Rookick Eric Schalgren coming up. I think it definitely is going to be a different maker. Goaltending can always make or break into the playoffs. All I need is one hot goaltender to all of a sudden take a team that you didn't think was going to make it to the Stanley Cups and take them all the way. Look at Jordan Bennington in 2019. Came out of nowhere, brought the Blues all the way to the Stanley Cup. We'll see who which goalie is going to take the reins uh, in this series. 
Yeah, and uh, we saw last year Carey Price, uh, you know, carrying the Habs on his exactly. uh, shoulders all the way to the Stanley Cup final. Didn't end up winning, but man, oh man, he was unbelievable. Um, I'm going to go with my heart instead of my head. And being a Leafs fan, <laughs> I'll say Toronto in six. You can send your laughing emojis to at Rick Zamprin on Twitter. Uh, Brian, who are you going for in this series? You know, it, it really is one of those where everything for me says the Maple Leafs, but then it, you take a step back and it's like, well, wait a minute. They're going against the back-to-back Stanley Cup champions, a team that is loaded with talent, as you said, Kucherov, Stamkos, Vasilevsky, Hedman. And it's like, how do you not pick the Lightning? I mean, this is a team that has been dominant the last two seasons against a team that historically in the last two decades has not done well at all in the postseason. So for me, I'm going to go Lightning in seven. I do think the fact that it's going to be a little bit more physical of a series is going to play into the favor of the Lightning. I you know, think the Maple Leafs might get caught going a little bit out of their way to play the physical game and not focused on their style of play, and I think that's going to work in favor for Tampa Bay. Brian, I hate you, but I respect your position. Brian Murphy <laughs> is the NHL content producer with the Sporting News, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Canadian hockey fans in Calgary and Edmonton also excited. Flames battling the Stars, Oilers taking on the Kings in Round 1. Do you expect the Flames and Oilers to win and face off in round two i do uh spoiler alert i have flames winning actually the 2022 stanley cup i think that out of all of the teams that finished towards the top of the standings they're not getting talked about enough we're talking about the panthers the avalanche the maple leafs the lightning uh, even i feel like the oilers are getting talked about more just because of mcdavid and dry settle than the flames so i think the flames definitely take care of business in the first round i think in fairly dominant fashion against the dallas stars and on the other side, I do think that this is the the year we see a little bit further success in the postseason for the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, I think if you had to ask a lot of people, I think the Kings are kind of the fa- the um, favorite to be the upset if there was going to be anyone in the first round, just because, you know, the, the struggles of the Oilers. But I think they're so good. And Mike Smith has gotten hot at the right time with a sensational April month. It's going to be so difficult to stop McDavid and Dreisaitl. And I think they had such little, because of the sweep last year, they're coming in with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder to do well there. I think both of them get passed to the second round. If I had a dark horse team, and I'm not sure they fall into the dark horse category because they got north of 100 points, that would be the New York Rangers uh, riding a ultra-hot goaltending. Uh, they have some timely scoring, some top-level talent as well. Who, who's your dark horse team? Rick, I like how you think because the Rangers are definitely my team. I actually have them going all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals. Igor Shosturkin has just been so good this year. And as we discussed, goaltending can really make the difference. There are some questions five on five with their play. They do rely a lot on power play scoring to get them by in games. But Shosturkin, man, he's had such a sensational season. He should be winning the Vesna, In my opinion, if you were to look at any of the teams that maybe isn't getting talked about enough to potentially win the Cup, the Rangers are my choice as well. So if you have the Flames going all the way, who is your Conn Smythe Trophy winner? Is it Kachak? Is it Markstrom? Is it somebody else? I, I went back between the two, but I do have Markstrom. It's kind of like the reasons why we discussed. It, the goaltending makes a difference. And I feel like his season also isn't getting talked about enough. I mean, rightfully so. Shesterkin has been the best goaltender in the league all season long. But guys like Jacob Markstrom and Frederick Anderson have been up there and deserve to be in the conversation. I expect Markstrom to be a top three Vesna finalist. He has been so good. The tandem between him and Dan Vladar and that have been so reliant for Calgary this season. Uh, and obviously their top line of Kachuk and Goudreau and Elias Lindholm 
great at five on five, one of the top. Really, I feel like Goudreau wasn't getting talked about enough, and then he finally was where it's like, okay, he's a 100-point scorer, but like Chuck was as well. Uh, but if I had to go with a Conn Smythe winner right now, I think I'd go with the guy in the net, and that's Jacob Markstrom. It's a good pick. Brian, really appreciate your time. Enjoy the Stanley Cup playoffs. Of course, the most exciting time of the year. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's nothing better than sitting down and watching a hockey game. And what makes it even more enjoyable, at least sometimes, is having an old brewski by your side and pounding one back. Uh, Obviously, if you're out and about, we want you to please uh, drink responsibly, uh, take an Uber or a taxi, or make sure you have a designated driver. Um, But watching hockey and drinking beer kind of goes hand in hand. And there's a new survey out that shows, well, some fan bases like to tip back the old uh, beer, and uh, some fan bases are not as quite as active as others. Here to talk about it is Ben Trainer. He's with TimeToPlay.com and joins us to talk about this uh, interesting new survey. Ben, how are you? Hey, doing well. Good to talk to you. Let's start with how this survey was conducted. How did you get these statistics? Sure. Well, we use an online research platform to conduct this survey, and I specifically sent it out to hockey fans, of course, over the age of 21, uh, but I wanted to make sure I was able to survey fans of every team, so we went across all of the U.S. and all of Canada to get our results. We surveyed over 1,500 fans. Now, are you surveying fans who are just in the arena, or these people who are at bars at home? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, specifically, uh, we ask for fans, you know, when they kind of get together with their friends to watch a game or when it's a special occasion. Um, So if you're going to the arena, if you're going out to the bar with your pals to watch a game, that's what we were looking for. Uh, Because based on some of these numbers, to to drink this much at home every time you watch a game, that could be expensive and kind of hard on the body. Be very much more expensive uh, at the arena, too, especially if you're heading down to Scotiabank Arena in Toronto. Uh, Beers aren't cheap there, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But let's start with the bottom five uh, uh, fan bases, I guess, uh, on which NHL fans drink the most. Uh, Coming up in last is the Rangers, which to me is kind of weird. That's New York City. Yeah, you know, it's New York City, but New York City is also pretty darn expensive otherwise. So, uh, And I know their ticket prices are extremely high to go to a game there at Madison Square Garden, so maybe once the fans finally make it, they can't really afford to enjoy as many beers as they'd like. (laughs) Elsewhere in the top five at 31 is uh, Washington. New Jersey comes in at 30. Islanders fans are 29th. And Seattle, the expansion Kraken, comes in at uh, 28. Any, Any surprises, I guess, other than the Rangers? You know, in that bottom five, the, the the thing I see again is those are all pretty expensive places to live. Mm-hmm. So this was my theory as to maybe why the fans aren't taking part quite as much. And also, uh, maybe these fans are having a little before the game or a little after. We were specifically <laughs> asking during the game. Yeah, that's probably true, too. Our guest is Ben Trainer. He's with TimeToPlay.com. They've done an analysis of which NHL fans drink the most during the games. Average drink per game for New York Rangers can fans 1.8 the capitals at 1.9 new jersey and the islanders and seattle all at 2.1 and then it kind of escalates from there on the other side of the equation is the top five and we have arizona at number five colorado is fourth fans of the lightning sit in third chicago is second and ben the number one team in terms of fans pounding back the brewskis is well, I think that's why I'm talking to you. It's your Toronto Maple Leafs. We win! We finally won something! 
Wow. Hey, maybe our mothers can be proud of this. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I can take uh, I can take a little bit of uh, you know congratulatory high fives on this one. I've I've put back a few brews during the game in my day, but mostly well, did you take the survey. Well, no, but mostly it's uh, compounded with tears in the beer as well because yeah, come playoff point. time, come playoff time, it's usually uh, not a good feeling at the end of it. Um, so the Leafs number one three point nine average drinks per game they are also amongst the highest in terms of spending uh, average per game on alcohol that's 56 dollars and 50 or pardon me 58 dollars and 50 cents so not only are they drinking the most they're spending the most yeah, that works out to around 15 bucks a beer if you break it down. And, uh, you know, I've been to a few games in the last couple of years, um, in Chicago specifically, um, and I'd say that's about right. The, the beer prices in the stadiums these days are just getting out of hand. Yeah, the, the next highest in terms of the average spend is Pittsburgh, uh, coming in at uh, number 7 overall with 3.5 uh, drinks per game, but spending 52.50 on those drinks. As far as the other Canadian teams, Calgary is all the way down in 26th, Montreal in 25th, Winnipeg 24th, Vancouver 22nd, and uh, Ottawa at 8th, uh, followed by uh, Edmonton at 6th. Ottawa on 8th is interesting to me because there's a lot of Leafs fans that go to Senators games, especially when the Leafs are in town um the average uh, money spent uh, from highest to lowest was anything surprising to you other than maybe toronto and, and pittsburgh being a little bit high that one kind of surprised me you know pittsburgh did surprise me as well and i i kind of dug into it and apparently there's a, a kind of a local backlash of the the pittsburgh fans that it's getting too affordable they can't really afford to go to games anymore they're being priced out of their own stadium or their arena rather but um you know it, it was kind of hit or miss so and I, maybe there was a little bit of inaccuracy in our survey here whether someone's drinking at a bar or drinking at the stadium um either way uh I think on average we're looking at about ten bucks a beer across the board at a minimum, and that's that's a lot of money for some beers. Yeah, interesting stuff. Also tied for last in terms of the average spent on alcohol with the Rangers are fans of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Also at twenty four thirty per game night. Uh, ben, appreciate your time. Uh, enjoy the NHL playoffs as well, and thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks to talk to you, and uh, enjoy your beers. You can get more information at timetoplay.com. That's time the number two play.com. The Maple Leafs number one on the chart. I should say Maple Leafs fans number one on the chart, averaging 3.9 drinks per game and uh, at an average spend of 58.50, both number one in the National Hockey League. The price point doesn't surprise me at all, especially. Those surveyed who go to Scotiabank Arena or even those who go to uh, bars and pubs around uh, or in town or around the arena. Because, uh, as I said, it is not uh, a cheap affair to go at Scotiabank and uh, pound uh, 3.9 drinks back. Uh, Pittsburgh, again, surprised me, though, at 52.50. Again, more information, timetoplay.com. Pretty cool chart that you can investigate and check out your favorite team if it's not the Leafs or one of the Canadian teams. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.